Matthew chapter 6. If you, have, if you don't have a Bible, there's these uh, black Bibles in the chairs around you. Uh, we're going to be on page 811 in that Bible. Good job. And uh, Chad, take it away. All right. Let's read Matthew six nineteen through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Our Father, I just thank you so much for this time together this morning uh, with your people. And for those who are here visiting who are not yet your people, thank you for bringing them this morning. Um, Lord, I do declare as, as the songs we sang this morning, especially Be Thou My Vision, that, that you are our treasure, Lord. And we and I repent of the ways that um, you haven't been my treasure or our treasure. I pray that you would cause us to, to see you more and treasure you more this morning. Lord, I pray desperately that you would speak through me, um, set me free uh, from the fear of man. Uh, make me become less in this moment and you become more. It's an honor and a pleasure to, to call you our God and our Father and our Master. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Daniel said, I'm Chad. I know it's weird because he just told you my name, but this weird thing when you get up to say, I'm Chad. I know you know that. Um, you stole some of my thunder, Smitty. I was going to tell him the story about how we met and how cool it was, but I won't say that. I am not one of the pastors here. And most of you know that. Maybe I haven't even met all of you because my wife and I have only been going here for six months. Um, but if you're visiting this morning, I'm going to ask you, don't judge this church based off of my sermon because I'm not one of the normal preachers unless it's a really good sermon. And then judge this church definitely based on my sermon because our other pastors are better preachers than I. Um, I want to be a pastor when I grow up. I want to be a preacher. So um, thanks, Daniel and the other pastors for giving me this opportunity. It's really a joy and an honor. So before we start, I want to give you guys a, a book recommendation. Um, Daniel gave this book to me, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn, about a month ago and said, hey, read this before you preach. It'll be really good. And it was really good. And it's only 90 pages, and I highly recommend it. And we have them out in the foyer. So if you want, if, if this sermon, if God's Word sparks more interest in you, I would highly recommend it. Super easy read. And at the end, I haven't gone through it yet, but there's like a 31 days of devotions to really do a heart test to see what you're treasuring. So get it after church. Most of you may have heard of John D. Rockefeller. He's known as one of the richest men who ever lived, probably the richest American who ever lived. I looked him up a little bit, and at the height of his wealth, he was worth $409 billion. And this is back in like 1830 to 1910 when he lived. After he died, someone asked his accountant how much money he left behind, and the response was classic. The accountant responded, he left all of it. So I have a news flash for us this morning, a new idea. I'm kidding, it's not, that's how cults start. 
80 years of technological advances since Rockefeller has died. Gluten-free eating, keto diets, and kale smoothies still have enabled us to take our treasures with us when we die. And yet, much of the world lives as if we can take our treasures with us when we die, even some Christians. So much of our culture lives by the bumper sticker, whoever dies with the most toys wins. It's been a struggle in the human heart ever since sin entered the world. And I would say, especially in America. I don't want to be too dramatic. Ask my wife and my life group and Daniel if I'm a dramatic guy. I really am. I don't want to be like, you know, no offense parents or grandparents, but like walk into school in the snow, uphill, both ways. I don't want to be like that. But I do think, and I'm not a historian and I didn't fact check this. You can take it or leave it. But I think America is, is one of the wealthiest people groups who have ever lived. And we, most of us have this sickness, and, and our culture does, called affluenza. I didn't coin that. I think it was a documentary on PBS or something. We all struggle with this desire for more and more. We have affluenza. The, think about it. The American dream is built upon earthly treasures. People even move here from all over the world to get the great jobs so they can have not just one house, but have a, a vacation house. And I'm not hating on you if you have that. Um, but to, to drive the cars, to uh, retire early so we can work on our golf swing and collect seashells, as John Piper says. That's the American dream. Well, in the text this morning, Jesus speaks about the reality of earthly versus heavenly treasures, and it's powerful. Randy Alcorn in his book says that 15% of everything that Christ said relates to the topic of money and possessions, more than his teachings on heaven and hell combined. That's almost one in six times that Jesus speaks, he's speaking on earthly possessions. When I read that, I just kind of went through my Bible after Matthew 6 and looked, and I saw the story of the rich young ruler who loved his wealth. And Jesus said, you got to give it all to follow me. The parable of the hidden treasure. Jesus' comments on paying taxes. The parable of the talents. The widow's offering. The parable of the rich fool. Jesus and Zacchaeus. I'm going to remind you guys of this story of Jesus and Zacchaeus because it really illustrates what we're going to see in the text this morning. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. And he climbed up in a sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see. I don't remember the rest of the song, but I sang that like almost every Sunday in in Sunday school. Um, But remember this story. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible and church, let me just remind you. And for those of you who are, it'll be a good reminder. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. He's made a lot of money, extorting money from people, charging them more than the tax was owed and pocketing the rest. He was very rich. Jesus comes to him and says, Zacchaeus, get down from the tree. I'm coming to your house today. And we don't, the Bible doesn't tell us that he, what happened. Surely Jesus, the son of man, shared the gospel with him. Because we see Zacchaeus say, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and I'll restore fourfold anyone I have defrauded. And what does Jesus say? Today, salvation has come to this house. This illustrates what we're going to see in the text, and I believe the main point of this text. The heart of a person is evidenced by what they treasure and where they store it. And if we wanted to get a little more specific, the heart of a Christian is evidenced by the fact that they treasure God and store treasures with Him in heaven. 
Again, Randy Alcorn says, Our approach to earthly treasures isn't just important, it's central to our spiritual lives. So as we dive into the text, let me ask a few more questions. Some why questions and a what question. Why does Jesus have to say these things? Why are we humans so prone to seek earthly treasures? Why does Jesus talk about it so much? What is at the heart of our seeking earthly treasures? And here's what I think. I don't think we, we seek, let's say, money because we have this obsession with little rectangular green pieces of paper with dead president faces on them. I don't think we seek houses because we really like big wooden apparatuses, okay? I think there are desires that underlie the pursuit of these earthly treasures. And some of the big ones in my 32 years of life are security, hope, acceptance, satisfaction, to name a few. I'm not being exhaustive. But those are some of the greatest desires in all of our hearts. And we seek these earthly treasures to fill them. Since sin entered the world, every human in one way or another, at one time or another, has experienced deep insecurity, hopelessness, rejection, and depression. I know I have. And we seek the remedy to those symptoms in things besides God. In this case, in the text, in earthly treasures. And that's the essence of sin and idolatry. In a powerful passage in in Jeremiah 2, God tells Jeremiah to say to the people of Israel, Be appalled, O heavens, be shocked, be utterly desolate, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. So with all that said, let's, let's dive into the text. Let's look at it. The text, I hope you noticed, is broken into three paragraphs, and each one contain a point, and therefore the sermon is going to be organized in the same way. Again, the main point is that the heart of a person is evidenced by what or whom they treasure and where they store it, and it's supported by three ideas. And as an uh, aspiring, nerdy pastor, I have alliterated the three points. There are two storehouses, there are two sites, and there are two slave owners. Let's first look at the two storehouses in verse 19. Jesus tells us, he starts by saying, do not, do not store up treasures for yourselves on earth. I think sometimes as contemporary American Christians, we can read that quickly and in our mind, in our heart, we read it as you should not. But there it is, a simple command to obey, do not. And actually, the more literal Greek rendering is, stop treasuring up treasures for yourselves on earth. The picture is of greedy, selfish accumulation of earthly treasures. Wealth that isn't being used, selfishly hoarded to spend on yourself at a later time. But I want to be clear. Jesus isn't saying we shouldn't have anything. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty. Probably a lot of us have heard a Christian say, it's a rule that we're all supposed to sell everything and give it all to the poor and own nothing. That's not what Jesus is saying or taught. He's not saying the only way to spiritual riches is through material poverty. Two of the Ten Commandments, do not steal and do not covet, imply the right to personal property. The Bible teaches us to work hard, to earn a living, to provide for our families, to be good stewards. 
It's the love of wealth and possessions, earthly treasures that's dangerous. John Calvin says, when riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. More importantly, God tells us through Paul, writing to Timothy, that love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus tells us not to store treasures on earth and why we shouldn't. Think about it, earth. Earth, it's not evil and horrible. There were some worldviews maybe now, but I know back in the first century that they thought everything material was evil. All of it. The earth, the whole earth was evil. Our bodies were evil. And everything spiritual was good. We shouldn't have that worldview. God created the earth. He created us with bodies. It's not that the earth is an awful place, but it is a temporary place. It is a sin-sick place. And as the word says, it's a place subject to futility. It's a place where moths and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Back then, besides gold and silver, two big ways to measure wealth were garments and grain. Both would get eaten by bugs and rodents. Both are subject to natural decay. If not eaten or decayed from within, natural decay, they're decayed from without, stolen by thieves. Probably a lot of us have had something stolen in our lives. And even though nowadays we measure wealth differently, all of our stuff is subject to decay and theft. Even the immaterial things we treasure, like the praise of men, relationships, success, or accomplishment, all decay pretty quickly. I had a moderate amount of success as a college track and field athlete, and the successes I had in my sport probably lasted about a day until it had decayed out of my heart and I was wanting more and more and more. These things don't last. They don't provide ultimate joy, satisfaction, hope, or security. The bottom line here in verse 19 is treasures on earth aren't eternal. Like I just said, they're not going to last. They're not going to fill the holes in our heart. So don't store treasures there. So in verse 20, Jesus turns to tell us what to do. Verse 20 says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So it's not that Jesus is against investing. He's against unwise, unfulfilling investing. He loves us. His commands are for our good and for His glory. He calls us to invest our treasures in the right storehouse. And the comparison of those storehouses is almost unworthy of a comparison. Whereas earth, like I said, is temporary, sin-sick, subjected to futility. Heaven is eternal. It's perfect. It's glorious. It's impenetrable. It's impregnable. It's not subject to decay or futility. And it's not like our treasures on earth are protected or in heaven are protected from moth or rust or thieves. There are no moth or rust or thieves, at least destroying moths. If you're like me, I'm I'm one of those people who believes there's going to be animals in heaven. So I think there might be moths there, but they're not going to destroy anything. We might have pet moths, they're cute, but they're not going to destroy anything. And there's definitely going to be no rust and definitely no thieves. So then what are the treasures in heaven and how do we make deposits? Don Carson defines treasures in heaven in this way. Whatever is of good and eternal significance that comes out of what is done on earth. So anytime we do something, anything with the desire to deepen ours or someone else's relationship or treasuring Christ, we are storing a treasure in heaven. So when we read this text within the context of the Sermon on the Mount in the previous passage, 
uh, that Daniel preached on two weeks ago, Jesus gives us three great ways to store treasures in heaven. Giving, praying, fasting with the correct heart motives. As Daniel said two weeks ago, with an eye towards an audience of one, namely God. So when we give and pray and fast, not to be seen by others, but by our Father, we're storing treasures in heaven. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. Daniel did a great job two weeks ago. I'm just going to call you all to do those things. Give and pray and fast towards an audience of one, and you're storing treasures in heaven. When we do those things, they last forever, and they do ultimately satisfy, because they cause us to treasure Him more. So those are the two storehouses for treasure. But the paragraph doesn't end there, does it? There's still verse 21. And in verse 21, Jesus brings it to the heart level. He tells us that what we treasure and where we store it shows our hearts. And church, I believe this verse is the main point of this passage. If you hear nothing else, if I'm too boring and you're heading to sleep, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think it's the ground of his argument in verses 19 and 20, and verses 22 through 24 flow from and support this idea. Verses 19 and 20 are good and practical truths, but as verse 21, as Jesus does throughout the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 21, he ties in our hearts. We see that we've been seeing all these weeks through this whole sermon, Jesus is concerned with our hearts. It's not just that obeying verses 19 and 20 are good and practical, because they are. It's that what we treasure and where we store it shows what we love, and it shows what we set our hearts and our minds on. I think a lot of times, again, as contemporary, maybe American Christians, we think of heart only as love, and it is love and emotions, but it's more. Throughout the Bible, when the Bible uses the word heart, it's more talking about the center of one's being, involving emotions, reason, and will, our deepest desires. The nature of a person's heart is reflected in the things they value the most. Again, Don Carson says, the most cherished treasure subtly but infallibly controls the whole person's direction and values. So as Joey said, as he called us to worship, I'm just going to ask again, do you treasure God above everything and nothing else in addition to Him? When you analyze your life right now, what do you treasure most? Some of you, many of you probably like me, have an iPhone. How many iPhone users are in here? One, Joey? Okay, there there you all are. So... If you don't have an iPhone, that's okay. I'm not going to be one of those uppity Apple users. You'll get this illustration. But a few months ago, in one of the updates, I hope you guys got it. About once a month, my phone tells me about my screen time. Am I the only one? Or does it say like, here's how many hours you spent looking at your phone, and then percentages of you spent 20% on social media. You spent 40% on emails. You spent 37% talking on the phone or texting. You guys got it? Thanks, Joe. You guys are awesome. So I wonder if we could, if, if God would do that for us, if we could just get a report and we could see the way we spend our time and our money and percentages, we would all know what we treasure the most. So think about that. If God sent you that report right now on your phone, where would most of your time be? Maybe besides work, because we have to do that. But our free time and the extra money that we use, not on living expenses, and, and if I got to see that, I could tell you what you treasure. So think about that. 
We cannot separate our treasures from our heart, you guys. Our treasures follow our hearts, and our hearts follow our treasures. Let me illustrate this personally. About a year ago, I had the honor and and humbled to be asked to be on the board of directors at a local ministry here in town called the Alpha Center. We should know it because we're a partner. This is a um, Jesus-loving, Christian-operated pregnancy resource center on the campus of CSU, kind of like LFTI, just seeing so many babies saved. But one of the things that was required if I was going to say yes to being on the board was that you have to give financially. Um, And my feathers got ruffled a little bit, not a lot, because I thought, you know, I love the Lord. I'm I'm giving to my church. Um, I give extra to ministries like Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and, and sometimes I've given to even like Desiring God and Ligonier. But I think the, the chairman of the board and everyone else who came up with that idea knew this principle, that if, if I really loved the ministry of the Alpha Center, that I would give to it. And as I, as I have given to it, my wife and I, monthly and then yearly at the Alpha Center Gala, it's been amazing to see the way my heart has followed that treasure and I love the ministry even more. And I have, a, I have an investment into that ministry. And not only do I not plan on ever stopping supporting that ministry, but every year we've given a little bit more and a little bit more. It's been really cool to see. So for us, my challenge to you guys, I'm going to get really specific and don't let it get awkward, but I'm going to call you guys to give financially to the ministry here at The Crossing. And I love that I get to be the one preaching this because I'm not one of the pastors here. And so if you're visiting here and you're like, oh, Christians are charlatans. He wants me to give money because it goes towards the pastor's vacation fund. A, we don't have one of those. And B, we're honored to have pastors who can draw a salary from this church and devote their lives to ministry, to, to shepherding us and creating contexts and environments where we can go make the name of Jesus Christ famous in northern Colorado and everywhere else. So when, when I get the email weekly, the, the messenger, you guys hopefully if, you're, if, you, if this is your home church, you get that email. And we see the budget. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm always seeing that we're, we've been under budget since I've been going to this church for six months. We're in the red. And I take that personally. I don't know about you guys, but I don't like that. I would love to see our church be in the black by the end of the year. If you love this church, if, like I do, only been here six months, and Jesus has loved me through you guys in a way I haven't in a long time, I commend you for that. Give financially to this church. See what happens to your heart. See the investment of your heart as you support this church financially. So those are the two storehouses that reflect where our hearts are. So in the next paragraph, I've titled The Two Sites. Jesus illustrates the way in which our treasures end up in their respective storehouse. I know this can be confusing. Actually, this paragraph was pretty confusing for me most of my life. It seems like Jesus like, takes a total right turn and you have no idea where he's going. Let me help you understand this. I think I have a grasp on it. Jesus illustrates our hearts by using the metaphor of our eyes. Okay, let me lean on two better theologians than I. John MacArthur says, the heart is the eye of the soul. As our eyes see light and guide us, our hearts see spiritual light and guide us. Matthew Henry says, our eye represents our aims and intentions, which is another way of saying the desires of our heart. 
He says, by the eye, we set our end before us. In other words, in the the eyes of our heart, which can be reflected in our literal eyes, show us what treasure and what storehouse we have placed before us. So Jesus isn't going on a tangent. He's just explaining verse 21. So Jesus says, if our eyes are healthy, or another translation, clear, or the King James translation, single, if your eyes are single, then your whole body will be full of light. We have clear and healthy eyes when the eyes of our hearts are towards God with a single-hearted devotion to store treasure in heaven. If we are generous with our giving, praying, and fasting, it shows we have healthy eyes. But in contrast, if our eyes are bad, our whole body will be full of darkness. An evil eye was a Jewish colloquialism that means grudging or greedy or stingy. An eye that is evil or bad is a heart that is selfishly indulgent. Uh, This is illustrated really well in Matthew 20. So if you want to turn in your Bibles with me, please do. I'm not going to read the whole text or um, start a new sermon. Just just summarizing showed the great illustration. So Matthew 20, um, if you remember, it starts uh, at the beginning. It's the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Hopefully you guys remember, I will refresh you just like I did with Zacchaeus. So this, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who, who goes to hire people to work his vineyard. And he hires people early in the morning and agrees with them to pay them a denarius for a day's work. But then throughout the day, the master keeps going and hiring more people. Eventually, he, on, he hires some people to only work for one hour. And they do, and at the end of the day, the master's going to pay them, and he has the people who only worked for one hour come first, and they receive a denarius. So these people who worked all day are thinking, well, we're going to get more money because we worked all day. We've borne the heat of the day. And the master still just gives them a denarius. You guys remember this story. And they get really mad at him. They think they deserve more than the people who only worked an hour. And check out verse 15. The master says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And if you're reading in the ESV, there's a little one next to generosity, which is a footnote. Look down in the bottom left of your footnote. It says, or is your eye bad because I am good? Are you being greedy because I am being generous? We see the colloquialism. That's the original text right there. Do you have a bad eye because I'm being generous? Greedy eyes represent a heart that is full of darkness. You can turn back to to Matthew 6. He says, if then the light in you is darkness... How great is that darkness? In other words, if the thing that God has given you, okay, your heart, to be your only source of spiritual light is darkened by greed, how great is that darkness? Let me try to illustrate this. I hope this helps. I made this up. If it doesn't help, pretend it didn't happen. Look back at verse 22 with me, and I'm just going to illustrate, I can't explain this very well. You're just going to have to listen, okay? Just look on with verse 20, and I'm going I'm to, I'm done, listen. The window is the lamp of the house. Sorry, pause. We got to pretend there's no such thing as electricity or fire. The only source of light is the sun. Sorry. The window is the lamp of the house. So if your window is healthy, or if your window is clear or clean, your whole house will be full of light. 
But if your window is dirty or worse, blacked out, your whole house will be full of darkness. If then the window that is supposed to provide you light, your only source of light for your house, is blacked out, is darkened, how great is the darkness? Does that make sense or should we pretend that never happened? Makes sense. Cool. Good. The eyes of our, if the eyes of our hearts are towards God and generously seeking to store treasures in heaven, then our lives will be full of light. And if the eyes of our hearts are towards earthly treasures, selfishly seeking to store treasures on earth, then our lives, our hearts, and our souls will be full of darkness. And one of the big ways we know what the eyes of our hearts are fixed on is by looking at what our literal eyes are fixed on. So I ask you all, what are you fixing your eyes on? What are you consuming with your eyes? There have been many seasons in my life where I'm convicted with our obsession for entertainment. It's not all bad, but just there have been seasons where my wife and I were in the Word four times a week together. And there are seasons where we literally watch a movie or a show seven times a week. And I'm just convicted, like, what am I consuming with my eyes? Is this helping me treasure Jesus more? So I encourage you all to to pray for healthy, clear, and single eyes. I'm going to touch on this at the end, but you can't really work this up in yourself. You can put yourself in the right context. You can put the right things before your eyes. But we need to pray that God would give us healthy, clear, and single eyes to be generous towards the things of God. As Paul says in Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, the eyes of your hearts, on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So that's the two sights. The eyes of our hearts, which can be reflected in our literal eyes, are what we use to place our treasures before us and in turn show us what master we're serving. And that's the last verse. There are two slave owners. Similar to verse 19, this is a pretty direct truth. It starts and ends with direct, easy to understand commands or truths. At the beginning, he says, no one can serve two masters. At the end, he says, you cannot serve God and money. It doesn't say you should not. We cannot, you guys. Uh, the word money there is the Semitic word mammon, uh, which the root in both Aramaic and Hebrew indicates that in which one has confidence. So as I've been saying, it can and does apply to wealth and possessions, but all the other things too. The praise of men, relationships, success, um, accomplishment in business or in sports like I was when I was young. The language in verse 24 is of slavery. Some of you in here may have two jobs and therefore two bosses. That's okay. You can have two employers. You cannot have two masters. There's no such thing as co-equal masters. We can try to pretend all we want. God plus sports, like so much of our culture struggles with. God plus relationships. God plus sex, God plus money, God plus success, God plus accomplishment. But in the end, if we aren't serving God wholeheartedly, treasuring Him wholeheartedly, we aren't serving Him at all. He's not our slave owner. 
As Christians, we say, Jesus is Lord. What do we mean by that if we don't mean that I am his slave and he is my master? Listen to Don Carson. This might hurt. Attempts at divided loyalty, like I've just said, betray not a partial commitment to discipleship, but deep-seated commitment to idolatry. There is only one person or thing worthy of being your slave owner, and that's Jesus Christ. And take it from a guy who, who didn't give his life, who didn't get saved until I was 26 years old, and I tried all the other slave owners, and they chewed me up and they spit me out. And I met Jesus, who's been a gracious and tender and loving slave owner, who came and died for me. That's who I want to serve, and that's who you want to serve. There's no such thing as a Christian who's not a slave of Christ. So let me finish uh, by pointing our hearts to the gospel this morning and getting a little personal, because that's who I am. Um, This is not a bootstrap sermon. I don't believe in them. I don't want to preach them. What I mean by that is the application, even though I've given some throughout, is not try harder. Treasure God more by trying harder and doing, 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 and earning your way to heaven. That's not the gospel. It's so good. Sorry, I get emotional. The gospel is not based on our ability to treasure God, but the way He's treasured us in Christ. We didn't and we can't cause ourselves to treasure God. My wife hates red onions. She despises them. <laughs> if I eat a breakfast burrito at 5 a.m. and it has red onions in it, at 7 p.m. she still won't kiss me. <laughs> You'll get where this is going here in a sec. <laughs> it would take a miracle in my wife's taste buds for her to love red onions. Sounds a lot like being born again, doesn't it? The Bible teaches we're not born neutral. We're born in sin. We're born treasuring the things of this world, seeking broken cisterns that continually leak. And when we, when we believe the gospel, when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, He causes us to be born again. He enables us to treasure Christ more than anything else. So I'm calling Christians and non-Christians alike to believe the gospel, to trust the gospel. You can't work this up in yourselves. So let me just finish with a couple personal struggles with this. It's funny that I'm preaching this in God's providence because, and I think it's true for all the pastors, we preach and we're passionate about it, um, but we, I don't have this figured out. It's really funny because this has been the main lesson that I have been learning for the last five years. And it's actually gotten harder and worse in the last seven months, let me tell you. My wife and I moved back to Fort Collins in 2014 so I could be a, a part of a uh, ministry. I, I felt like God had been calling me to, to be in ministry. And so um, we moved back here. We moved in with my parents thinking uh, it'll be for a short season and then we'll get to have our own house or at least our own apartment or our own condo. And Again, in God's providence, Smitty, uh, that's Daniel. Sorry, I never call him Daniel. Pastor Daniel Smitty. Um, 
this morning used a word that I wouldn't, a word that I couldn't even have thought of, astronomical. I, we didn't know that to be able to afford a house here, it, you have, it's astronomical. <laughs> and I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty if you have your own house and this is not a... Um, but I, I sit here as a man with a wife and two kids and I compare myself to a, to a lot of you guys, some of my some of our good friends not only have gotten to have their their own house and own apartment, but they've already done the upgrade. They've already said we've grown out of this house. And so, in the last five years, my wife and I have been saying, "God, we treasure you, but we'd be happier if we had a house." You know, and I love my parents, and I told they're right there, and and I'm really close with them, and so is Audrey. But it's just hard when you're like. A grown man and you're living with your parents and you want your own space. But God has been showing Audrey and I, um, you're adding to me. You can't say I'm, I'm your treasure, but then say, but I'd be happier if I had this. It's been a really hard but really good lesson. We wouldn't change it. And then the other thing is, um, seven months ago in December, I stepped down from ministry and I didn't, for a lot of reasons, it was really hard. Um, but I, it, I wasn't stepping away from the ministry because I didn't want to be in ministry anymore. I really like deep in my bones. All I want to do is be a pastor and a preacher and shepherd people. Um, but I had to step down. And in my heart for the last seven months, I have seen um, that I'm saying, Jesus, you're my treasure. I'm satisfied in you. But I'd be more happy. If I was in vocational ministry, if I was getting to make a living doing this, and it's again, it's just another deeper lesson. He doesn't want me, and He doesn't want you. Our Lord does not want us to be satisfied and to seek security and acceptance and joy and satisfaction in anything of this world. Even good things, like a house. You know, the Bible does say the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. It's a good desire, I think, that I want to raise my kids as disciples in a home. It's a good desire to be in vocational ministry. And I think you guys can relate. I don't know all of you really well, but I don't think many of you are struggling with the temptation right now, like, should I buy the Ferrari or should I buy the Lamborghini or should I buy like the, the fifth um, vacation house? We're struggling with real things. Like, I have this desire for my, for my life that would make me happier. Like, Jesus, you're, you're almost enough. I had this desire for my kids, especially the ones that might be wayward. I would just be happier if they were following the Lord of my grandkids. And as good as those things are, we should not find our hope and our security and our satisfaction. Church, Jesus should be our treasure. Please treasure Him with me. I need you to keep doing that. I need Him to keep loving me through you and you need it from me. I'll finish with this. Job's friend, Job's friend says to Job, if you lay your gold in the dust, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. Then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. So let's just, everything of this earth that we think we'd be satisfied in, all the gold and silver, please with me just throw it in the dust this morning and lift up your face to God and treasure God. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we love you, we treasure you, um, and we thank you that the gospel is not based on our um, ability, but the way you treasure us. 
Thank you for this church body that has loved my wife and I so well. Thank you for your son who has, by his death on the cross, enabled us to treasure what is of ultimate value, and that's you, Lord. So, Lord, take your words and plant them in my heart, I pray, because I'm still struggling to learn this lesson and to be completely satisfied in you. And I pray for everyone in here that they would just know that that you are the fountain of living water and nothing else satisfies, and that we would have, uh, as a church body, just a a single-minded, single-hearted devotion to treasure you, to to store treasures in heaven with you, Lord, to have clean and healthy eyes, um, and that you would be uh, glorified as a great Lord and a great Master, and we would be happy as your slaves. We praise you, Lord. We give you all the glory, and I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.